Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome back, everybody, to Natural MD Radio. This is Dr. Aviva Ram, and it's a pleasure, as always, to have you here with me. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that is so front and center in the media that if you haven't heard about the microbiome, I think you might be residing on another planet temporarily because you pretty much can't open up any newspaper, any magazine, or go on any website and talk and, and not see about it. There's an old Indian text, a Vedic text, that says, a person whose basic emotional and physical tendencies are in balance, whose digestive power is balanced, whose bodily tissues, elimination functions, and activities are in balance, that person is said to be healthy. The idea that gut is central to our health goes back thousands of years, but it's been largely absent from modern medicine and modern science until very recently. In my my own medical practice and my practice as an herbalist, I see the gut as the epicenter of health. And in my approach, it's often one of the first areas of the body that I work on for helping my patients with many, many different types of conditions. And as a midwife, certainly what we know about the health of the newborn And the newborn's microbiome and how that might be altered, for example, by cesarean section or introduction of antibiotics to the mom in labor or at the time of the C-section can have an impact on childhood health and lifelong health. So today, I want to share with you a colleague of mine who is just an incredible human being and our guest and happens to be one of the leading experts probably in the world, although he might deny it because he's a really humble guy on the microbiome, Dr. Joseph Petrosino. Dr. Petrosino is a professor and interim chairman of the Department of Molecular Virology and Microbiology at Baylor College of Medicine, where he's also the director of the Alkec Center for Metagenomics and Microbiome Research. He holds joint appointments in the Human Genome Sequencing Center, the Dan L. Duncan Cancer Center, and the Department of Ophthalmology. His undergrad degree is in microbiology and immunology with a distinction in research from the University of Rochester from 1993, followed by a PhD in microbiology and immunology from Baylor in 1998. After postdoctoral fellowship training in genetics and genomics at Baylor, he was hired as a tenure-track faculty member at BCM in 2006. But it doesn't stop there. In 2007, Joe and his colleagues obtained funding through the NIH Common Fund for the Human Microbiome Project as a large-scale sequencing center. He's the principal investigator and has assisted in the lead of consortium efforts for standardized clinical sample preparation, sequencing, and analysis. To build on his research program, BCM established the Alkec Center for Metagenomics and Microbiome Research in 2011, with Joe serving as its director since that time. 
The CMMR has pursued over 400 metagenomics projects in humans and in model systems with the goal to improve human health through detection and modulation of the microbes that reside on and in us and to translate these efforts into new diagnostics and therapeutics. CMMR has now become a major microbiome research center. Dr. Petrosino has authored or co-authored more than 200 original papers. Among the latest CMMR projects published is a 19 million microbiome, uh, sorry, 19 million dollar microbiome analysis of more than 24,000 type 1 diabetes samples collected for, from more than 900 infants and children in the National Institutes of Health TEDI, or the Environmental Determinants of Diabetes in the Young, study. Initial results have examined how the environment influences microbiome development from birth in these at-risk children and how virus exposure may increase the risk of type 1 diabetes onset. Other recent studies of note include the role of the microbiome in successful immunotherapy with Jennifer Wargo at the MD Anderson Cancer Center and study of the role of commensal microbiome microbes in the treatment of social anxiety. Ongoing studies that will emerge soon include the influence of the microbiome in protection from disease during cleanup processes associated with natural disasters, and the study of how the microbiome influences anxiety, depression, and their treatment. In recognition of his leadership in the field, Dr. Petrosino was named an American Society for Microbiology Distinguished Lecturer for 2012 to 2014 and sits on the scientific advisory boards for several microbiome and nutrition companies looking to improve human health and or leveraging the microbiome to treat disease. And he's such a great guy, such a kind human being. And even in all that he's doing, agreed to share time with us today. I met Joe about four years ago on a scientific advisory panel that we're both on, and he's just been an absolute pleasure to work with. Joe, thank you for joining me today. I am so grateful for your time and your knowledge and all that you're doing for all of us. Well, thank you so much, Aviva. Thank you so much for the generous introduction. Um, and I really, really am looking forward to our discussion. It's been It's great to be here. So, all right. Tell me what you think about this idea of the gut being the epicenter of human health. Do you think that's a, that's a stretch, or would you say, yeah, could be so? No, no, I, I think that's actually a very accurate statement, and um, I, I reflect on it from time to time because I, I um, you know, gr- growing up and going to college and doing my studies at the places you mentioned, um, I think about how we were trained uh, years ago in um, health, particularly with respect, with respect to the immune system. Um, all those, A lot of those stories about the thymus and bone marrow and circulati- circulating uh, antibodies and B cells and T cells, all that's true. Um, but was un- what was underappreciated then, and we're still, still uh, struggling to grasp the full appreciation of now, is how important the, di- the digestive tract is uh, with the development of our immune system and the maintenance of our immune system. Um, one way to, to sort of look at it, and the way I, I think of it from a very remedial perspective, uh, is the body is a donut. And uh, our, from mouth to the other end, uh, being thought of as actually external to our body, um, and under normal healthy conditions, um, our body is very, very selective of what it lets permeate the gastrointestinal lining. 
what nutrients are allowed to pass through, what small molecules, uh, other metabolites uh, that our body takes in is very well regulated and maintained in, in health. In, um, in states of dysbiosis or uh, times that we're not healthy, that barrier tends to break down, and that's when products that we don't want to enter our bloodstream tend to be taken up and can exacerbate disease. Um, and so the handshake, colloquially sorry, what people call leaky gut or intestinal yes. hyperpermeability. Exactly, exactly. So leaky guts uh, often associated with a variety of inflammatory and other types of diseases um, can exacerbate, can be the primary cause of a particular ailment and can other also be an exacerbation or compounding uh, event or factor in, in other diseases. And uh, just to finish that sort of body is a donut, gut is external metaphor, um, if you think about the bacteria that line the gut, uh, you could think of them as sort of the uh, ambassadors to entry into your body. That is, is that they're processing some of the foods that you're eating so that the molecules become recognizable by your body to take in uh, and provide a healthy benefit. Uh, they can proliferate in different ways to, to have certain members of that microbial community or microbiome expand or contract. And, and when some members tend to overgrow, that causes your immune system to do different things, sometimes beneficial, sometimes not beneficial. Um, and so there's the handshake between the environment. In this case, we're talking about the diet. Uh, and your immune system and your general wellness, your general health, your metabolic health. So I, I was recently going through, um, I, I was Marie Kondoing my office. Have you heard of Marie Kondo, the whole tight art of tidying up your house? I was cleaning yes. up my, oh yeah, so I was cleaning up my office and I found a whole stack of overhead projector slides. So mm -hmm. this, these go way back, right? Absolutely. And I found some slides from the early 90s in which I was talking about the microbiome. I even surprised myself. But as an herbalist, you know, the health of the gut, and we go back to even some of the early kind of ancient Greek physicians, they talked about the importance of the gut for healing. Mm -hmm. And but nobody was really talking about it that back then in the way we are now. So you went and did your graduate degree in the 90s. Were, are you shocked at, at how this has exploded? I mean, it's just everywhere now. Were you anticipating uh, that? I, I was not anticipating that. I, I think the, um, you know, I, my focus wasn't necessarily on, on the gut in particular. It was more on just microbes in general. And, and up until the mid, you know, uh, even after the mid-90s, up until early 2000s, a lot of us in the microbiology, immunology realm were focusing on your favorite pathogens. Um, some of them having to do with biodefense and other types of more nefarious uh, types of uses for microbes, but but more importantly, the emerging infectious diseases that are coming, uh, that are emerging all the time that, here, that we hear about in the news or that we're exposed to through food contamination. Um, that's where a lot of the money was being spent. And it's really through uh, the advent of next generation sequencing technologies, the same same technology that's brought us the sequencing of the human genome, uh, that we're able to map or take a census of microbes wherever they may exist, whether they're in your gut or on your skin or under your stove or in an oil well or wherever they are, uh, without having to grow them. So I think that's been a limiting factor in the years up until you know the last 15 to 20 years. A uh, limiting factor has been our inability to culture these organisms uh, routinely uh, because many of them un uh, exist under conditions that are difficult to replicate in the lab. They, they require actually the absence of oxygen or very little oxygen and sometimes require other metabolites that are produced by other bacteria 
uh, in concert with their own growth. So you'd have to co-culture them or create little communities of bacteria to actually encourage their growth in the lab. So, so they were very hard to study. And so because of that, uh, to your point, uh, there wasn't a lot of research focused on them. There wasn't, it wasn't zero, but it was definitely not very much and definitely not as much as there is right now. So I um, find that for myself, the more I read about the microbiome from a technical perspective, um, the more I feel like the less we know on some levels, right? The, the big gaping holes become apparent to me in especially the connection between what we know from bench research and what we're hearing in the media, what we're hearing in the functional medicine world, et cetera, um, in terms of what we can do clinically. So part of what I'd love to do in this conversation, because I think this will be particularly helpful for listeners, is to talk about some of the conditions that we know pretty definitively have a gut health relationship. Talk about uh, what we know in terms of what conditions we can confidently apply probiotics for, and maybe some of the limitations of what we know about probiotics, but also some of the testing. I know we could probably take three days to have that conversation, so we'll keep it to a nutshell and address maybe some of the big areas. But I mean, just from, from my understanding there, and, and of course, your bio suggests this as well, there's a tremendous gut-brain connection. We know that there's a connection between depression, anxiety, and the gut. We know that there is a connection between the gut and the immune system, for example, leaky gut and autoimmunity, and the microbiome connects there. We know that there is a connection between the gut and obesity, and maybe some strains like firmicutes have something to do with that. But I've even read that there's connections between the gut and the um, resilience that we have in the HPA axis or the gut and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And certainly for listeners who are largely women in my audience, a tremendous connection between gut and hormones and the estrobilome. So I know that's a lot. Maybe you can pick some of your favorite areas to talk about. Sure. Sure. I, this is a, uh... You're, you're bringing up a fantastic topic because there is um, a lot of hype in the field, um, and some of it is is warranted, and some of it is not. And just like when the human genome was being sequenced and had been sequenced, there were uh, sort of low-hanging fruit opportunities to uh, come up with new diagnostics and potential interventions for certain diseases. And there was uh, there were others where the hype is still there. But we realize it's going to be much more involved to, to be able to identify the realization of treatment in a clinic. And I think there's going to be some of that to come true with microbiome research. I think the, the one advantage of the microbiome research, before we sort of dive into the individual applications and, and questions, is, is that the microbiome is malleable. Um, once you, you're born with a human genome that you have, so the 22,000 plus or minus genes that you have, uh, and all the polymorphisms that make you who you are, um, is relatively fixed. Um, there are uh, ways to access some of the, some genes more uh, routinely than others, but that your DNA is fixed. Uh, conversely, the microbiome is something that we could, that could be adjusted or could be uh, potentially intervened with uh, with less of a potential for side effects or less uh, sort of effort, so to speak. 
Um, sometimes it's just diet. Other 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 ways it could be through probiotics or or live biotherapeutics as they're being developed by companies now. So so the opportunity is there. Now the question that you raise is all right. So where are the opportunities and and how do we look at those uh, right now? And, and I think the um, you know I think the area where probiotics sort of uh, the use of probiotics as intervention sort of started taking off uh, actually more. Uh, effectively in the fecal transplant world, I'm sure your audience is familiar with fecal transplants, um, is in the area of actually infectious disease, and the specifically with the treatment of uh, an organism called Clostridium difficile, uh, or C. diff, uh, which is an opportunistic uh, pathogen that's picked up in the hospital, oftentimes when a patient is immune compromised, um, often in uh, very old or uh, older patients or others who are being treated with disease uh, drugs that would knock down your immune system. And the idea there, and I'm oversimplifying, but the idea there is, is that C. diff will take over uh, and, and overgrow in the gut when there are um, conditions that have knocked down or reduced your biomass and your current microbiome. And in reality, C. diff is sort of our first uh, evidence that the microbiome can be manipulated to help prevent disease uh, from occurring or uh, reduce it um, once it does occur. Uh, and that is simply by occupying a niche. Um, the, there's, it's a little bit more complex than that, but that, that's sort of the, the initial simplification. Um, in terms of depression and anxiety, uh, I think the, 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 even before we get into the, the brain-gut axis, uh, anything involving the immune system, so infl inflammatory disease, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, um, uh, food allergies, um, individual Crohn's and colitis. Um, those those diseases, I think, right now there's a variety of knowledge that's been that's accumulated that suggests that uh, microbial treatment or microbiome-based treatments uh, will have a positive benefit. Um, and there's a number of drugs in our trial right now that are that are looking to prove just that. Now, I think it's important to differentiate those. Uh, clinical trials from the probiotics that you can purchase over the counter. Um, and in general, I tend to stay away from the drug, the probiotics that we've, we've find over the counter. Um, in, uh, years ago, we used to, we took a, we analyzed some of those, uh, that come in a box and found that a lot of the organisms in them aren't necessarily what they say on the box or they aren't alive where they can't get to places in the digestive tract where you want them to act. Um, so, so Can we ahead. dive into this a little bit, Joe? Sure, I think this sure. is going to be a really um, big question for a lot of my audience. And it's definitely something that I struggle with in my clinical practice because the way well the wellness world is right now, there's so much information out there that much like direct-to-consumer advertising for pharmaceuticals on television is a problem for physicians because patients come in and say, well, I want this drug. I want that drug. I saw it on TV. Patients will come in and say the same thing. You know, I saw this on this website or that website um, or in this magazine, and I want to do this probiotic. And, you know, I find myself constantly balancing, supporting what people want if it's basically harmless, but at the same time, saying, you know, I'm not really sure the benefit is there. So you could be creating expensive stool for yourself, basically. Um, and at the same time, there's also that gap between what we know now and what we might know in a few years. So how do we know if there, are, I mean, do you feel like there are any probiotics on the market? 
I don't know if, if you're comfortable naming names just to help people out. If not, that's fine. Or would you just say really right now, as far as the market goes, not so much? Right. I, I will emphasize that um, when I um, when we did this initial study of probiotics, this was done about 10 years ago, um, and we have seen a uptick in, in the quality and the quality control of, of, the or, of the products that are carried over the counter. I, I think the um, – well, I can, I can give you one analogy um, that could help maybe with in terms of selection of probiotics. Um, when I first got started in this field, I, I quickly found that there um, were a number of clinical trials underway where – in addition to the drug that was under treatment, in conditions where uh, it was thought that there'd be a, a complication that would affect sort of stomach health or GI health, uh, a probiotic was also recommended or, or prescribed to perhaps alleviate some of the side effects or other known uh, GI issues associated with diseases. Yeah, we did uh, that in started. the hospital frequently with certain antibiotics, for example. Right, right, yeah. exactly. In every single instance that I saw, with no justification at the time, um, Culturel was the yep. probiotic that was that was recommended. Um, and at the time, I was I was actually it was interesting that they that that probiotic was selected because it was one of the few that we had tested that actually performed that was what it said it was and uh, did it with, or at least was active had the organisms at the right counts that reported on the box all that all that good stuff. Uh, that showed that they had a good quality control process in place. So I think, from a at least historically uh, over the counter, that 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 was a uh, a good product. Um, and again, I'm not I'm not on the cultural advisory board, so yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, um, it's a really that, difficult it's a really difficult kind of wild west situation for consumers. Right, right, because there's no uh, you know the regulatory mechanisms uh, that the, the mechanisms that regulate. Uh, the drug world are not the same that regulate the probiotic world. And I'm sure many of your um, listeners understand that. And so um, I, I would say that in the meantime, especially last, over the last five plus or minus years, we've seen a, an emergence of uh, new probiotics. Um, and, I, and I use the term probiotics when I think of microbes that you would take for wellness, that you may not necessarily have any specific um, condition that you would otherwise normally take a drug or something that's prescribed by a clinician. This is something where you're, you know, you're interested in your gut health. You're interested in maintaining a, a nutritional balance or a, a gut microbiome balance that helps you access the nutrients in your food more effectively. Wellness. And so probiotics I associate um, taking to help maintain or restore that. Um, or if you take an antibiotic and you want to help sort of recolonize your gut um, and you want to grab something off over the counter or online, um, th that's how I look at probiotics. Versus Although that study just came out suggesting that taking a probiotic after an antibiotic may delay your gut from restoring itself and sort of an example of a do we really know what we think we know sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah. No, so so I, I'm glad you brought that up. So I think the um, I think that's an interesting um, st study in and of itself. I think the um, without clinical sort of um, endpoints being measured, it's not necessarily yes. It's it's good to get back to where you were, um, but especially the things like with C. diff that's out there and other pathogens um, that are present, um, there are probiotics, if you're taking a good probiotic, um, that at least will keep 
keep the pathogens at bay um, while you're recovering, um, while your while your microbiome is restored. So I think in that case, yes. Um, with that, again, I, I, I would just. I'm uh, trying to think of the best way to put it. Frame that in the context of a single study. Yeah. Um, your your a pro, I, I think probiotics have a have a good place for maintaining gut health while you're you're recovering your own microbiome. Uh, there are indications. There are times when um, I can imagine where you're you're forcing your microbiome to play with another organism that your body hasn't selected naturally to be there. And so, just like inter- introducing a new child into a daycare center, or a uh, you know being the new kid in class, or whatnot, there may be some initial negative interactions. Um, but if it's a probiotic organism, they're generally safe, as you alluded to uh, earlier in our conversation. Um, and even if it throws things off balance for a while, or maybe may restrict uh, or slow down the recovery of your own uh, micro microbiota, it's not necessarily saying they do something bad. Um, so I just keep things in, in that frame of mind. I in like my that. Head. That's good. That's sort of how I think about it. You also mentioned something about the quality of probiotics, and when you when that when you guys did that study, found that some didn't didn't have live organisms in them. But there's been some question in the literature as to whether the organisms actually have to be live or whether there are other fragments of these organisms that may be doing some of the work. Can you address that? Yeah, no, I think that's a fantastic point. And so, and, and actually I would have, and that's a good point to actually um, relate back to what I was talking about before as drugs, as a um, meta, as a specific intervention for a specific disease where you're looking for a specific outcome. I want to improve, I want to increase my inflammatory response or I want to reduce my inflammatory response. Response. There's going to be times where you don't need the organism to be alive to achieve those, those, end, those end goals. However, in a probiotic organism, one where you're not really looking for a specific outcome but are looking for um, general gut health um, usually the mode of action or the mechanism uh, is poorly understood. And yes, in some cases, perhaps it is okay to have an organism that's not viable to, to be uh, sloughing off its polysaccharides as it's transversing your digestive tract or producing or having some other metabolic product that was once in that live cell but is still maintained in that dead cell, having that be accessible uh, as it's as it's passing through you. Um, but generally for a probiotic, uh, for a wellness, uh, application, um, I, I would tend to think just from common microbiology sort of sense, so to speak, um, that you're looking for live organisms as a, as a, as opposed to not dead organisms. Um, and I have other instances I could, we could talk about from a more of a therapeutic standpoint as well. Well, let's talk about, um, before we jump into therapeutics, are sure. there any th- specific things that uh, consumers can look for on a probiotic package that might give them an indication that this is at least a good quality product, even if we don't know fully all the therapeutic claims being accurate? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question because 
it gets back a little bit towards the regulatory uh, status of probiotics uh, as a supplement. Um, there aren't sort of good housekeeping. Uh, there aren't well-regulated seals of approval, so to speak, that you can look for on the side of a box of a probiotic and say, hey, I can count on this because it's been certified by X. Most of those certifica- uh, advisory boards or certification boards aren't regulated in their own right. And so um, it would go back to the reputation of whoever is making the claim. Um, so you know, in general, I look for, uh, if I were looking for a probiotic uh, over the counter, I look for more as many organisms as possible. So billions of organisms is better than millions of organisms. Um, and in terms of the way a lot of, or, a lot of these probiotics are, are prepped in a way that they're quote-unquote lyophilized or dried and so they can be stored at room temperature um refrigerated probiotics may give you a better feeling because it's thought it's colder conditions naturally restore live naturally sorry preserve live organisms um doesn't mean that that particular probiotic uh is any better than one that was lyophilized because they could easily put bat you know a number of dead bacteria and refrigerate them uh it's as well. so it's complicated it's like yeah. we deal with the same thing in the herbal industry and supplement industry and i realize i'm putting you on the spot with the same most difficult question that people ask me which is what supplement companies or what herbal companies do you recommend and with the herbal companies is actually a little bit easier because you know if you're harvesting an herb and you're extracting it properly you should have what you need in the bottle um right. but it's it's really difficult um in due to the same you know combination of lack of regulation and kind of um the studies that may say one thing but doesn't mean that's what their the right. end game action is in the human being that's using it it's tricky <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, and yeah. I guess the last the, the last sort of point to be made on that topic potentially would be um, this is where you get into your fermented foods and your yogurts. I was and your just going to ask you. Perfect. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think in those cases you're getting organisms that are that are known to be alive uh, in in those uh, various fermented foods um, uh, sort of category, and uh, and oftentimes provide other types of metabolites that those organisms like to live live with or on, uh, as well as other metabolites that are good for you. And that's why, you know, as a mark in the marketplace, I think it's been so sustainable and easily an easy message to relate to the consumer. But from a scientific perspective, also makes a lot of sense as well. Is that you if you supply the organism and the food that it likes to grow on, and that the organism had to be alive to create the food to begin with. And a lot of these companies rely on the live organism for that food to be even made in the first place. Um, at least you had no going in that it's 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 a decent product. Yeah, I'm a huge proponent of my patients and myself. I, I eat fermented foods every day, and I just think they've been part of a traditional di- diet in most cultures, really, Absolutely. from time immemorial. I think that's something valuable to look at. Also, I know that um, at least one of the initial studies, I can't remember if it was UCSF or UCLA, it was a California study, I think, um, looking at women with anxiety, just adding yogurt to their diet every day. And it wasn't even necessarily like an organic, good quality, fabulous yogurt. It was just a regular yogurt. Um yep improving anxiety in those women. So maybe we can talk about that as a bridge to some of the therapeutic uses. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. So I think, um, especially in brain gut health, where the exact mechanism of how the gut brain axis is working to improve uh, a, a function of the brain, be it for anxiety or be it for learning and cognition or, or, or any other 
desired outcome. The, the actual the direct mechanism is still unknown, and so it, it's uh, some of the clues are actually provided by the fact that a more quote unquote general um, uh, product like a yogurt could have a positive impact may suggest that a more generalizable function. Uh, things that a lot of the bacteria in our microbiome do may be part of that sort of mystery or the, the, the solution to that mystery is what are they doing that improves brain health? So what might it, some of those things be? So production of short-chain fatty acids, for example, we know that uh, we, uh, uh, the earlier conversation I had today before we uh, talked, I think, is uh, the impact of butyrate. Mm -hmm. uh, so butyrate is a short-chain fatty acid that's produced by a lot of bacteria uh, in as they break down fiber and prebiotic foods, so the the foods that our bacteria like to grow on, the fertilizer for the garden, the garden of bacteria that grow in us, the short those short chain fatty acids are known to pass into the bloodstream and also enter the brain and have a positive impact on on brain function. Um, we know that molecules like GABA. Uh, are known to have positive are important for brain function are also produced by some bacteria in our digestive tract um, and so that may also have a, an important role in brain gut health um, and we know um, from studies actually that we have done uh, so I have a collaboration with uh, a neuroscientist here I'll name Mauro Costa Mattioli uh, who's a neuroscientist here at Baylor, uh, did a study showing that a bacterium uh, exposure early in the life of mice uh, reduced social anxiety in those mice. Uh, and so, um, and in, in, in particular, improved the, it was the uh, reward pathways in the brain. So it's oxytocin product is produced when a positive stimuli is, uh, occurs in a variety of aspects of life. And if the mice didn't see this, uh, bacterium in the gut. It was a lactobacillus reuteri strain, common to a lot of probiotics. Um, if you didn't see that strain shortly after weaning, um, that pathway, that response mechanism as a whole wasn't present. Um, and so it was a, almost a developmental signal that was needed in the gut to help the brain uh, function properly upon, in this case, seeing another mouse. It's so uh, fascinating. We think about, I was just talking about this with some of my students last night, how we think about the gut as producing, or the, the early microbiome, that infant microbiome as producing tolerance to foods, but it mm -hmm. actually produces tolerance to stress as well. Yes. So I think the, and you get to another sort of hot, you know, favorite area of mine is sort of the, the, the bacteria that colonize early in life. Um, yes. So the, not only the immune aspect, of, whether it's tolerance or sort of the sparring partner to help get your immune system, sort of actually like, like everything else at a balance, um, that's definitely a, a positive impact from the from the organisms that are colonizing us early. But but there's these systemic signals that are just now starting to be appreciated that impact development of the brain, impact of your uh, development of the cardiovascular system, uh, impacts your metabolic sort of rheostat or set point. Um, and then we're, we still have a lot to learn uh, in those areas. You know, I think for me, as I've been watching microbiome research emerge and watching both the scientific community, but even a little bit in the medical community start to wake up to this um, phenomenon that we can't look at the human body in these discrete silos. And medicine has really 
said, you know, we have a cardiovascular system, we have a digestive system, we have a nervous system, we have an endocrine system. And we do, I mean, it's helpful to look at those systems discreetly. But what I find with the microbiome is it's really, it's it's like the linchpin showing us it's all connected. And I love that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the you know, the diagnostic tools that are being developed now are more reflective of that paradigm. The idea that the body is indeed a system and that there's crosstalk between tissues and between barriers that we thought were relatively, uh, that didn't speak to one another. But things like metabolomics, looking at the uh, metabolites that are circulating in the bloodstream or proteomics, the proteins that are circulating in the bloodstream, uh, are reflective not just of our own uh, genetics, but are also reflective of the bacteria that live on and in us, and also the exposures that we have, the environment that we're that we're um, living in, uh, and the diet that we're eating. Um, go ahead. So, given that stress and anxiety are just mm-hmm. such huge issues for folks these days, and certainly the world we live in externally um, has a tremendous impact on us, but we may be even sort of dampening our ability to cope with stress by the the lifestyles, diets that we have, the intensity of antibiotic exposures that we have damaging our microbiome. So depression, anxiety, social anxiety, it sounds like it's pretty safe to say we can make a direct connection with the gut. It may not be the only reason we have those, but that can be one factor. Uh, I agree. Is there agree. something that that individuals can do um, as adults if they're already struggling with these. Maybe they did have a lot of antibiotics as a kid. Maybe they were born by cesarean, so they didn't have that good foundation laid. But now they're adults and they don't want to struggle with that. And, you know, they're doing all the right things. They're getting help. They're getting therapy. They're trying to eat a healthy diet. But maybe they still have this, you know, set point. Maybe it's, as you mentioned, maybe their uh, metabolic rheostat is off. So they struggle with weighing 20, 30 or more pounds more than they want to and even more than their lifestyle would suggest they should, but it's something going on in the gut. What can what can folks do? Yeah, you know, you you uh, it's the it's the million dollar question. Um, I think the, the that's the paradigm as you're making it for depression and anxiety uh, exists for all the other things you just you you threw in on top of it the metabolism, your inflammatory states. Um, we have this question: it's like, what can we do to maintain? Uh, or improve, uh, in this case, uh, mental health. And um, I think the, the short answer is, is the, the dietary uh, and exercise and sleep uh, prescriptions, if you will, that we get from our, our, our clinical and wellness practitioners, that's the, that's, those are the first things to look at. Um, the, the gut health and body health, we know, is directly impacted by diet, sleep, um, well, diet and sleep and exercise, probably most, uh, uh, to, very impact, it's a, it's a huge impact. Those so those things. are things that everyone can kind of take mm-hmm. in their own hands. So maybe we can talk about the impact of those three areas. I know from studies, even just three days of a standard American diet completely mm-hmm. can affect the microbiome. Exactly. I've read studies about gut microbiota getting jet lagged, um, Mm -hmm. studies that have actually looked at mice and their gut microbiome. Uh, So let's talk about how these impacts happen and what specific types of foods, you know, how much sleep, 
what forms mm-hmm. of exercise might be best for the microbiome. Absolutely. So, so the uh, I'll give you one more anecdote. So, people that go on uh, trick work or go from a day shift to a night shift, um, you can re- recapitulate this in the laboratory very easily with with say mice, uh, where you flip their day and night circadian rhythms, and they will gain weight. Um, if you take the gut bacteria from those mice that just had their circadian rhythm flipped, and put the gut bacteria into mice that have a otherwise uh, they've not had their their circadian rhythm changed, those gut bacteria will cause the mice to gain weight. Amazing. Um, yeah. So, so, um, so I think from a dietary perspective, I think we start with the prebiotic foods. So the foods that bacteria like to eat, um, fiber, inulin, uh, the leafy things that we find in leafy greens and berries, uh, is, is the primary focus. Um, we definitely don't, eat enough of them. And we know that in cultures where they still are a main component of their diet, so Amerindian cultures or uh, pristine cultures that have not had a lot of Western intervention, uh, where leaf, leafy vegetables, and as you mentioned, fermented foods uh, tend to be eat, consumed at a uh, almost exponentially lar- higher level compared to what we do in a Western diet. Those, those individuals have a much more diverse microbiome and they have less incidence of cardiovascular disease. They have less incidence of, uh, of depression and some of the other sort of quote-unquote Western diseases that a lot of us uh, are afflicted with today. Now, there are a ton of other uh, influences that are hard to sort of dissect from uh, studies in those cultures. They don't have maybe necessarily quote-unquote the pressures of a uh, 40-hour work week and uh, some of the other things that we tend yeah. to deal with. But in general, the biomarkers, cortisol levels, the things that we associate with stress at a, at a measurable level are much lower. Um, and the bacteria that we isolate or that are isolated from those cultures tend to have a lot uh, of beneficial uh, impact in terms of short-chain fatty acid production like we talked about uh, a little while ago or produce hormones that we know are, have a beneficial impact on systemic health. Uh, so there are actually companies that are looking to "quote unquote" harvest and uh, uh, produce some of the microbes, some of the metabolic products that we in Western culture may have lost over the use of antibiotics or Westernized food food processes. So, circling back, diet huge: uh, leafy vegetables, berries, um, lean lean meats. When you do it for for protein uh, intake, we know that red meats. Uh, for a variety of reasons not related to the microbiome, but also related to the microbiome, uh, can have a negative impact. Um, I, again, I you know, then people ask me, Joe, what do you eat? And I tend to go more of the everything in moderation mm-hmm. uh, perspective. From a sleep perspective, I think you know I'm not a sleep expert, but um, I, I you know I, I know you know different at different ages when you're young, you know. Eight nine hours of sleep per night is is often uh, ideal, or even more. As you get older, it, it drops down a little bit. But many of us are struggling to find six hours of sleep, um, and we know that that can have a negative impact. And, and the negative impact that we see in the lab uh, is often a drop in diversity. It's sort of the uh, high level gross um, readout or telemetry that we can say your your microbiome may be maybe under stress um and that's often or something can be revealed with with reduced levels of sleep and this is important because 
Um, we don't necessarily know that there's one, or I, I'm, I'm asking more than telling, but my understanding is that we don't know that there's one ideal microbiome. We all have some variation of an, of our own ideal microbiome or disrupted microbiome, but diversity seems to be the most important factor. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely, and and you you bring up a point that I probably should have emphasized at the very get go. It's it's the, the we we as people like to name things and sort of categorize things and put them into a shoebox or a pigeonhole and say you know that's that uh, or that's called that. Um, in reality, it's the functions of the microbiome or the functions of the organisms that are inside of you that are most important. And we can all and we do we all have a different microbiome inside of us. Um, those who we're related to or live with tend to be a little bit more similar or that tend to be more similar than those that live far apart or unrelated to us. Um, but the functions they encode tend to be conserved. And um, if the functions that are important for health are present, then you're good. That's a good microbiome. Uh, we're still defining all of those, all of those different functions. But in terms of the research, uh, and in terms of the profiling of the microbiome and how we will someday uh, get used to profiling a microbiome in the laboratory uh, or in a clinical setting, I think it's going to be much more aligned to the, the functional perspective. What are your organisms doing rather than what the names of those organisms are that will be most important? And that then lends to part of why picking this microorganism or that microorganism for a probiotic gets more complex. I read some years ago, I'm not as geeky as you, I'm sure, but I'm relatively geeky. Um, Mm -hmm. I read a textbook from the UK on the microbiome. And one of the things that really fascinated me was uh, you, you could take an antibiotic, for example, and virtually wipe out an entire group of organisms. And then you could have some pathogenic organisms in there that actually become beneficial by taking the place of the beneficials that were wiped out. So it's really, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of complexity and moving parts of what's happening to my understanding. Yes, no, absolutely. And you, you've, you've uh, honed in on yet another important point. The fact is, is that uh, all organisms, almost all organisms, live on some sort of continuum of pathogen versus commensal uh, or commensal. So if you think of a, on one end of a spectrum, an organism is very beneficial to you, and the other, other end of the spectrum can be very um, pathogenic and dangerous for you. And there's some organisms that slide along that scale based on the environment that they're sitting in. Um, and to your point, um, in cases where diversity is down, uh, less nutrients are around. Uh, there's sometimes less competition for nutrients. Some organisms will sort of ratchet down their combativeness, so to speak, and say, you know, I can just live here and not create a lot of stress for my host. Uh, <laughs> and, and other organisms actually will then, uh, it's, it's, it's the opposite. They actually see less competition and they ratchet up um, their, their, the pathogenic, pathogenic side of their uh functionality and will cause disease the opportunistic uh, ones huh exactly yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. so interesting you can almost I'm, I'm just imagining little cartoon characters i always imagine with you know with yeast overgrowth mm-hmm. the, the little yeast just saying feed me sugar feed me sugar <laughs> yeah no exactly exactly and it's the it gets back to the point made about this diversity earlier the functions that are present and if there is it, it is there's just some that. Uh, some organisms and fungi that um, 
will thrive in a condition where there's not very much else there. And so they have all the nutrients that they could possibly want and they sort of like gluttons take over. And, and as they take over, it makes it harder and harder and harder for your own native microbes to, to grow back. And that's when there's a disbalance or a dysbiosis, uh, to use the word, and uh, problems emerge. Now, you mentioned um, fiber, uh, lots of fruits, and ve- you know, especially berries, vegetables. We talked about fats, um, and especially the short-chain fatty acids that are produced by uh, helpful bacteria and organisms. We talked about sleep and circadian rhythm disruption. You were going to mention exercise as well. Are there forms of exercise that are more or less beneficial for the microbiome? For example, I know that for some for some women um, or many women, over exercise actually increases stress. So, do you mm. see, for example, marathon runners maybe having more dysbiosis versus yogis? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. And to be perfectly honest, I, I don't, um, I haven't seen enough information in the field to necessarily suggest one is, or there's certain exercises that are better than, better than others. I will say though that, uh, sort of the extreme athletes, uh, while they have a lot of wonderful things going for them, uh, that have made them able to do the things that they do that I wish I could do. Um, there are aspects, uh, of their metabolism, of their inflammatory states that may not be that beneficial for for bacteria so if you think about um, the inflammation that occurs when you're breaking down a lot of muscle tissue as you endure extreme sports or extreme uh, periods of endurance um, hyperinflammatory states it almost sets up a, a cyclical like a snowball running down the uh, rolling downhill is that high inflammation may change your microbiome, which can then exacerbate inflammation and it sort of becomes, you fall down that slippery path. Um, however, there haven't been that many studies done to, to, to look at the, the extreme benefit, the, the benefits, the true benefits uh, on the microbiome of extreme sports uh, as, it, as opposed to, say, yoga or more traditional workout patterns in a gym. We do know that people who do exercise, so the traditional um, you know, the weekend, not, not necessarily the weekend warrior, more than the weekend warrior, the people that may exercise three to five times a week, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour a day, that those patterns do tend to, to lead to, um, uh, or have an influence on having a strong microbiota. Um, again, like any other, uh, I, I, uh, qualify that by saying that there's, it's the exercise data are still relatively early on uh and when you look at that data those data you would so then ask yourself well are those people other practicing other other wellness dietary um practices that have also have a positive influence on the microbiome so uh, isolating strictly to exercise um is there's probably some additional studies that need to be done to corner the exact benefits but all in all i think from a from what we see with uh uh, behavior patterns and from uh, animal studies in the lab would suggest that activity breeds uh, health. And in this case, a, a gut bio- microbiota that tends to be more diverse uh, and beneficial for your general wellness, I think, could be achieved through, uh, through routine exercise. That's super helpful to hear. So it sounds like the things that we can do to support our microbiome really are all the good things that we do for our health that are that are beneficial for us. Right. 
So I have another million dollar question for you. And in fact, it may literally be worth millions of dollars, which is the um, at home or um, in office gut testing tools that are really popular. And there are times I have used them in my own clinical practice. Uh, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of our of our time together um, to my listeners, that when I have patients coming in for a, a wide variety, I mean, probably 50 or 60 different conditions that women come to me for or bring their children to me for, that I include addressing gut health through diet, exercise, stress reduction, um, uh, introduction of um, lacto-fermented foods and sometimes the use of probiotics to help turn those around. And I've seen really um, remarkable transformations happen, everything from fertility challenges to um, depression and anxiety to autoimmune um, conditions that symptoms become much more manageable or we even see remissions. And, you know, it's not just working with the microbiome. There often is a constellation of things I'm doing, but it's been really remarkable to me. Mm-hmm. I have been concerned about the uh, proliferation and validity of what I see on a lot of the gut tests and concerned also because when you get some of these gut tests back, it'll give you a readout of uh, the organisms that are found in your gut or the organisms that are expected to be in a gut. So there's, you know, maybe a hundred of them. And then it'll give you a chart that tells you whether you're high or low or where you are usually on a quintile on a range. And then it'll give you a check like, you know, just dozens of check marks going across a column, uh, you know, a set of columns that sort of suggest if you have this elevated or if you have this too low, you're now primed for a whole host of diseases. And it's sort of true, true, but not necessarily related, but it leads people to have a lot of anxiety when they see those tests. So, you know, without pointing fingers at any specific testing company, I would love to hear your thoughts on some of these generally available uh, microbiome tests and, and, you know, how seriously we should take the results um, or should we really even be using these tests right now? No, I, I think it's a fantastic topic. And um, I'll preface by saying that I, I started and I founded it and I'm a chief scientific officer for a, a microbiome testing company that does not do um, uh, sort of direct consumer or direct clinician testing. This is more for studies of uh, in pharmaceutical companies where they are looking to develop the next therapeutics based on microbiome science. So we are not. I'm not. While I do profile the microbiome, it's not for the purposes that you're talking about. Um, so I, I would I would say that the first element of my answer relates to a topic that we talked about just a moment ago, and that is that. In reality, it's not the names of the organisms that are truly important in whether or not, in determining whether or not a microbiome is healthy or not. It's what they're doing. It's the functions. And so, if a commercial entity is not profiling the functions of the organisms that are present, if they're inferring them based on the names of the organisms that are present, then I question that um, because we know that if you line up, say, ten isolates of the same species of bacteria, say E. coli. Um, that their genomes can differ all ten, you know, in those 10 strains by as much as 40%, plus or minus. 
And that so 40% of the functions may or may not be encoded as you go from one strain to the next. So inferring functions, inferring that there's your microbiome is doing something simply based on the names of who's there and who's not there is um, there's limitations to those interpretations, uh, especially if you're going to tell somebody that they're susceptible to disease because they're missing the name of something, the name of a specific type of organism. So I, I would start with that uh, as sort of a founding, uh, my founding sort of impression of, of over-the-counter testing uh, as it is right now. Um, compounding or compiling a microbiome profile perhaps with metabolomics or proteomics or a measurement of the metabolites that are generated or the things that are present uh, in your bloodstream or in your digestive tract while you're profiling the bacteria would be a stronger readout because um, then you get an idea of who's there and what they're doing. Um, and if you can get that in a, in a particular, uh, panel, then, then you're, you're further down the road in terms of making some, some good conclusions based on your gut health, um, diversity metrics. So, um, identifying where you fall in a diversity scale in ter terms of quartiles or quintiles, um, relative to the rest of the population is also, um, you should look at with a fine, a little bit of a finer tooth comb. Um, those quintiles are set up based on populations of people or other people's samples. And if you live in California um, versus you live in Finland, you're going to have a natural. Your the community as a whole is going to have a naturally higher uh, or lower diversity just based on the environment. Um, I was actually shocked to discover after, you know, 30 something years of being a midwife and treating women for vaginal infections mm -hmm. that my uh my understanding of lactobacilli being the predominant species for vaginal health is true, but may only be true for Caucasian women whereas mm -hmm. women of African descent may have equally healthy vaginal microbiota, but not have as a, a significant um, prevalence of lactobacillus. There may be other beneficials that are different, and that, yeah. that that's very popular. I was so surprised to learn that. No, no, that's a, and you make a beautiful point, both in terms of the functions being important rather than the names and the fact that uh, there are important sites outside of the gut that we need to look at for wellness as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but yes, no, absolutely. So, and, and now there are companies that are profiling now vaginal, you know, the vaginal microbiome at the same time. And, and you would have to look at those, the companies I'm familiar with are uh, actually, uh, to uh, best way to say it, they're they're a little bit more thoughtful in terms of making interpretations because mm -hmm. they, they they already know the association with uh, non Caucasian populations and, and and vaginal microbiome health and so um, and also familiar with how different uh, periods in life uh, and in the menstrual cycle can influence the microbiome so mm -hmm. um, different questions you get different types of metrics associated with them and and different measures of wellness and so so to just circle back. Um, last thoughts on the over-the-counter testing so i think um you know if you're if, if, a, if a company is is basing a scale based on a database that either they have collected or they have compiled from the public repositories um you know there's very few companies out there that i'm aware of that have that i mean because the field itself doesn't have the full breadth of what constitutes a healthy microbiome mm -hmm. 
Um, in order to do that, you would need microbes for, from uh, more microbiome data from everywhere on Earth. Uh, you'd have to understand the, the spectrum, better spectrum of wellness and how the microbiome associates with that. And, of course, the functions that various organisms are capable of uh, that may, they may not exist in uh, the databases today, uh, but will emerge as we learn more about the, the different special functional abilities of, of the organisms that colonize the gut. And additionally, what's really popular right now is SIBO testing, so small int- intestinal bacterial overgrowth testing. And my understanding is that even there, there are significant limitations to the validity of the test. It doesn't mean don't ever do these tests, but to sort of take some of the results with a grain of salt. Yeah, no, and so I'm less familiar with those, um, so I can't probably speak as much to the validity or non-validity of those of those assays. But I, I think, in general, I think um, if you, if you're profiling based, sorry, if you're profiling based on uh, names of organisms, um, then you're 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 I think the inferences you can make are very, very limited. Uh, overgrowth, both in the small intestinal bowel as well as in the colon, I think, um, it, it, I guess it depends on the, the quote-unquote disease that you're treating as to whether or not the validity, how much that information can help you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, one of the areas I know that you have a huge interest in and an emerging interest, which I'm super excited about, I actually interviewed um, um Gloria Dominguez Bello on mm. her work with the infant microbiome for the podcast uh, is the influence of early microbiome development and lifelong health. I'd love to hear what you're doing with this and some of your early findings. Uh, absolutely. Um, and so for this, I'll relate back to our study on type 1 diabetes in a cohort of children that we looked at uh, from Western Europe and the United States. So again, even though it sounds like a large population, and it is a large population, it's obviously exclusive of a lot of areas of other areas of the world. Um, but to, to this point in time, it, it represented an, a unique opportunity to look at, uh, at a fine resolution, the colonization of the microbiome immediately after birth, well, actually starting at three months of age. And, um, and so in, in our case, we were, we were originally looking at how is the microbiome in children that go on to become type 1 diabetic or are predisposed to type 1 diabetic, how does that uh, occur and how does that differ from children that may be predisposed but do not become type 1 diabetic? Um, and from a higher level or sort of a secondary but meaningful endpoint, we were able to look at just how does the microbiome colonize? Uh, there have not been a lot of widespread studies that have looked at this. Um, there's been a number of studies, but they've often been limited in numbers in children and or limited in geographic distribution of those children. Um, and so what we were looking at was can we identify uh, exposures of children, things that the kids were uh, raised around that helped influence gut diversity or gut health, uh, as we understood it both in terms of the microbiome as well as their other sort of wellness information. How many times were they going to the doctor's offices? How many fevers did they have? Um, other types of just more wellness that we uh, are more used to measuring in, in infants and young children. And we found that it's things that you would imagine. Uh, breastfeeding uh, early, uh, you know, early years in life, early uh, period in life, um, exposure to fewer antibiotics, uh, exposure to furry pets, maybe a little bit less expected, but you can understand, um, uh, and exposure to siblings all had uh, 
significant impacts on the development of the microbiome. Interestingly, the those are the same factors that have been looked at and found to be correlated with development of eczema and asthma. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so in these, in, in so the, um, you're referring to the you know, children that are agrarian raised children tend to have lower incidences of allergy and asthma compared to exactly. So, so, yes. And so it's, so we're making the connections. So the exposure to bacteria uh, and the hygiene hypothesis, going back to that as well, yeah. um, uh, tend to be good things, beneficial. Um, I apologize for that. No worries. Um, so tend to be ben- exposure to bacteria tend to be beneficial early in life. And um, what we were able to do using the data from this cohort was actually build uh, a type of chart um, that looks at the the growth of the microbiome in the first three years of life, much the way you would go into your uh, wellness checkup and look at the head circumference or the length of your baby or the weight of the baby, and begin to put together, again, in a limited cohort, um, somewhat limited cohort, uh, how the micro, uh, microbiome sort of maturation measurement. Um, and we're not the first people to do that, but we're able to do it with a very large number of children and to, to a finer resolution, and then be able to assess are certain children not sticking to that scale? Are they up ahead of the curve? Or are they under the curve? Um, and what that may may mean later in life. And so we'll have to track these children to 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 find out some more about what that means. But I think that's pointing more towards this precision medicine or personalized medicine approach to wellness, as well as it is for uh, looking at disease. The idea that when you go in for your checkup for your infant, and eventually, uh, or maybe at the same time yourselves ourselves, um, you'll be bringing with you a stool sample or other types of samples to be able to, to assess your gut health uh, as you measure your other clinical parameters. So funny, I'm just imagining the Jetsons, because when I was a kid, yes. when I was a kid, the idea of like, you know, having this TV that you could talk to people on was the Jetsons, and it was so futuristic, mm-hmm. and now I'm just imagining the Jetsons and their stool samples, you know? Yeah, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. So, so I think... Um, you know, we're all interested in building up a, a, a medicine uh, and wellness paradigm where we can um, have a treatment that we know or has has a much greater chance to work for us or ourselves uh, than just taking something out of the box over the counter or something that's prescribed for us for the general population because, you know, and we all want to have a, well, we all want to be healthier. Um, yeah. I think it really speaks to some larger, the work that you're doing has implications for larger forces. For example, you know, I, I've said to my husband at the end of my life, if all it said on my tombstone was she helped reduce antibiotic overuse, I would feel like it was a life well lived, you know? Absolutely. And there are so many social factors that are beyond what the individual can do, the pressures that are on women now that are leading to a 34% cesarean section rate or lack of uh, paid uh, postpartum leave that makes it very difficult for women who want to breastfeed and are able to breastfeed to be home and do that for an extended period of time or the pressures to take antibiotics or the pressures that doctors feel to prescribe antibiotics. So I feel like it's, you know, it's going to have to be more than precision medicine that says, okay, well, here's the probiotic to remedy your situation, but how do we address these cultural forces that are having such a huge impact on our health? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, environment and all these things relate back to, a, to the, to the environment box, so to speak, um, at a broad level that, 
um, we have to do a better job of maintaining, to your point, all these exposures that are unnecessary or, or are pressed upon us um, have a direct impact on health in ways that we already know about, such as smoking, um, or have unseen impacts that we're only just now starting to learn about. And yeah, so I just, right. yeah, I just read about um, the impact of, well, two things. One is the impact of endocrine disruptors disrupting mm-hmm. the microbiota. And mm-hmm. also the ability of microbiota, I guess, on an evolutionary basis to help metabolize or or, or eliminate uh, heavy metals that would be found in the soil and accompany our food, but that we're now uh, exposed to so exposed to so many of them that there's like this evolutionary mismatch that our microbiome can't keep up with the exposures. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it goes back to our initial conversation as the body is a donut and the microbiome is uh, sort of helping us between the handshake between the environment and our immune system or our, or our, our systemic health. Um, it's, you know, if you think about it, again, the human genome being uh, rigid and the microbiome being uh, more malleable plastic, you need this sort of bar- this uh, flexible barrier to engage these uh, all these changing, ever-changing exposures that we have in the environment. And it seems like now that even that is being overwhelmed by um, the, 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 the influences of modern, uh, well, food production, modern chemical production, our well, climate change. We don't have to go into that. Um, all these factors. It's a lot. And Joe, I am. I couldn't wish for somebody better at the forefront of this and to have you know the generosity you have in the midst of everything you're doing to come on the show and talk with um, the community that's here listening and so eager to do better for themselves and for their family and to participate in helping to make a better world so that it's healthier for us for our microbiome and you know for as the research you're doing shows next generations, which we have such an influence on with what we're doing now. So thank you so much. I look forward to having you on the show again in a few years, because I know things are going to transform even more. It it was my pleasure. It was really wonderful. And um, to your point, we're going to be making uh, strides, uh, hopefully on a monthly, hopefully on a daily basis, uh, but at least on a monthly and annual basis. I'd be loving to, to get back and talk with you and your listeners again. Thank you, Joe. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks at our Scientific Advisory Committee meeting. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me today and listening to this episode of Natural MD Radio. I'll see you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.